Good morning. My name is Todd Komarowski, and the scripture patches today comes from 1 Peter. I'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. So then, when Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your life chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I have been the pastor here at Grace 242 uh, for about a month now, starting today. So, uh, all right, one person likes it. No, no, I can't, yeah, I get it. I get it. Thank you all. Yeah, praise the Lord. It's been, it's been a wonderful month. It really has. Um, and in my month, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what, is, what does God want for Grace 242? And what do I want for Grace 242? And and when I think about what do I want for Grace 242, that question is really easy because it's always I want what God wants for Grace 242. So that's an easy answer. Um, but then that leads us to what does God want for Grace 242, and that answer is a little bit more difficult to, to, to answer right away. So this new series in this new year, especially with the turn of a calendar into a new year, is all about what does God want for Grace 242. That's what this new series is about. What does God want for Grace 242? So how many of you in here have ever seen House Hunters? All right, how many? Uh, House Hunters on HGTV? Yeah, of course. Yep, all the men's hands are down and the women's hands are up. Um, <laughs> so House Hunters is kind of uh, HGTV's flagship show. It's kind of their vanilla show. And you know this. They, they follow a, a set of buyers, you know, whether it be a couple or a, a person looking to buy a house. And, and they look at different houses and then they kind of choose from these different options and they kind of follow the buyer through this process and eventually they choose a home and then they stage a party at their house to make it look really fun like they're enjoying their new house right so there is a comedian who is a christian and his name is john christ and he did sort of a satire youtube video on house hunters called church hunters all right so this is his satire video on house hunters so let's watch this video from comedian john christ Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They are young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, just not, like for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right. I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen. It's just... Okay, you cry during Cake Boss. So, like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good, but we want, we want serious yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage yet relatable, you mm-hmm. know? We're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley with the body of Stephen Furtick. Hey, guys. What's happening? I'm Corey. Good to see you. My name's Nick. This hey, is Molly. Molly. Hey, guys. Welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just okay. this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh, Ooh, wow. that's good. Big deal. He does dress his age, though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full Giglio yet. Okay, oh. so there's holes in the knees or no? Well, it's frayed, but no holes. Frayed? Oh. No, okay. Got it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So, hey, let me show you around. Okay, right, let's Come on. do it. I do love this lobby. It's a great lobby. You know, yeah. it's not too big, not too small. Yeah. It should be enough 
room to catch up, chat with your friends. That's all you need. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits. So if you need to leave early and catch the game, you can do that. Got it. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Honestly, right up front, uh, didn't love the name. No. I, First Baptist? Who names a church that anymore? I just... Not these days. We're looking no. for like a Thrive Church, maybe Relevant Church, I don't know, Radiant Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Okay. Now remember, right. it's pretty traditional here. So when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down low. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> but the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Ooh, oh. for the yeah. yep. Or as the moms like to call it, the sanctuary walk of shame. Yeah. <laughs> the Sunday morning experience was just a little too traditional for, for us. For us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like we it. We do. We like Feels it. Great. Yeah. You know, it's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Scripture heavy sermons? Oh, or, yeah. 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 What about uh, is it community oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys got to see it. It's super rare nowadays. Come with me. There's like a, a maybe for when my parents we'll come into maybe. town yeah. for a church for Christmas. Easter type of church. Like a holiday Holidays. type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. Oh, babe. And there's wow. a great welcome team you could join. Perfect. Okay. And then, Nick, you scored really high in need for accountability. Wow. And the men's groups here are amazing. You're just, you're just going to put that out there? Hey, just God like knows that? your heart, okay? On the next episode of Church Hunters. I think you're really going to love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as interdenominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Oh, I heard some really good guffaws in there, which was great out of all of you. Um, I, I love this video, and John Christ is, I think, a fantastic comedian. And I think one of the reasons he does comedy so well is he knows that the secret to comedy is that there is sort of this embedded truth that we all can connect to, right? And I think the embedded truth in this video is that for much of the American church, it's largely about preference and what we want. That's the embedded truth that John Christ is really driving after in this video is that for much of our church going in America, it's largely about preference, all right? I mean, we, there are, it's, the, it's the first Sunday of 2019, and so people all over this country woke up this morning and they got ready and they got dressed and they ate their breakfast and they got into their cars and they drove to a church that they call My Church. And they call it My Church largely because that church that they drove to meets a set of preferences that they may have. Like, okay, I really love My Church because the pastor preaches relevant sermons that engage with my life. Or I really love My Church because they have a really sweet coffee bar and they have Starbucks coffee. I really love my church because they have really uh, comfortable furniture and a fireplace and space where you can have conversations. I love my church because it has a bookstore and it has lots of stuff for my kids in there. I really love my church because it has hymns. I really love my church because it has praise songs. I really love my church because it has high-quality music. In the show House Hunters, they will get a wish list from the buyers, and they'll periodically show this wish list as the 
the buyers or buyer tours these houses. Like, does it meet your preferences? Does it have the countertop you want? Like, uh, they always want granite countertops and stainless steel appliances, right? And they always want, uh, uh, there's a, you know, a bedroom suite. Does this have the bedroom suite that we're looking for? Does it have a finished basement? Does it have the yard and the fenced-in yard for our two dogs that we want, right? So in the same way, I feel like a lot of the American church treats church like house hunters, where we enter church with this sort of wish list in our head, and then we go through our list and we kind of make our check marks for, does this church meet my set of wish lists, right? Coffee, check. No coffee, check. Kids in the sanctuary, check. Kids not in the sanctuary, check. Pastor dresses down, check. Pastor dresses up, check. Stained glass windows, check. No stained glass windows, check, right? Whatever I want is what I check off on this preference list, and then that's what's going to be the main determination in whether I like this church or not. Now, I realize I'm kind of busting down the door and coming out swinging in 2019, all right? I realize I'm really kind of taking this head on, and I'm really kind of picking a fight here with preferences. I realize that, all right? But the reason why preference is such a driver in the American church, it's not like we just this just happened, all right? There are certainly reasons why we are this way. Why are we like this? There are certainly reasons why preference drives Americans when it comes to church, all right? And the first reason, I think, is because of, I'm using this word Christendom, okay? What do I mean when I say Christendom? Well, for many of us, and a majority of us, we grew up in, and we lived most of our lives, in a different world and a different era than we live in right now. Yesterday at men's group, Saturday morning men's group, we, <laughs> yesterday at Saturday morning men's group, uh, we, we, we talked about in our discussion, we said, you know, it, it used to be different than it is right now. We used to live in a world where Christianity was sort of acknowledged as the majority religion in the United States. If Facebook was around back then, most people would have just sort of defaulted in their status. When it says religion on your profile, most people would have just sort of defaulted to Christianity as their status. And we grew up in a world where most people went to some sort of church, right? Most people were involved in some sort of church. Church was relatively high on the priority list when it came to stuff that people fill their lives with. And a majority of people had a basic knowledge of the Bible or of Christianity. A majority of people had this knowledge of, you'd say Christianity, and they'd think, oh yeah, church, Bible, Jesus, they would know. Or you say the Bible, and they'd be like, oh yeah, creation, Noah's Ark, they'd know basic things about that. The majority of people had a basic knowledge of Christianity and scriptures, right? I was recently having a conversation with my mom. My mom is the uh, worship director at Hingham Reformed Church where I grew up. And I remember my mom and I were talking about the priorities in many people's lives now, and how church, for many people, is either not a priority or a pretty low priority. It's not something that they're going to bend over backwards to give their time to or fit in their life. It's sort of like, okay, well, I'll, I'll participate if it sort of fits with my own schedule and with what I want. And we were talking about priority, and my mom just started sort of pining for this nostalgic day gone by. And she started sort of reminiscing about what it was like when I was growing up in Hingham Reformed Church. And she was saying, as the worship director, that she never used to have a hard time scheduling practice for choir. She always had plenty of people in the choir, plenty of people who would show up for practice in the choir. And I remember when I was in high school, my mom would do these cantatas. And 
we would get, she would do these men's cantatas, and we would get men from all over Sheboygan County who were wanting to sing in this cantata. And I remember I participated in a few when I was in high school, and we'd get all these men, and we'd sing in this cantata. And we'd draw from the whole county. And I don't remember the last time she's done a cantata like that because there just isn't the people, there isn't the time, there isn't the energy there to do one of these things. Now, I'm not saying that my mom is right in everything that she says, But what I am saying is that my mom is acknowledging that we used to live in a world where Christianity had a much bigger influence in the public sphere than it does right now. And Christianity used to have a much bigger say over our culture than we do right now, and that we are living in a different day. Christendom is done. No longer is Christianity the dominant religion in America. Many people call today's age post-Christendom or post-Christianity. That's what we're living in right now, where Christianity is no longer rules the day as it used to. And... I think that Christendom, when we were living in Christendom, we kind of had this phrase that we would tell ourselves. And we would say, especially like when it came to evangelism, we would say, well, everybody's a Christian. Everybody that I know is a Christian because all my neighbors are Christians and all my friends are Christians and, you know, everybody I go to church with is a Christian. And so I don't even know who I would share my faith with because everybody that I know is a Christian. And so we kind of lulled ourselves into this belief that, oh, everybody believes the way that we do. And I think by telling ourselves this phrase, we sort of excused ourselves or let ourselves off the hook from the great commission of going into the world and making all disciples. Because we're saying, oh, well, that's already done because everybody I know is a Christian. So now I've excused myself from God's primary call over his church to go into all the world and make disciples. And now that I've let myself off the hook from God's call, now I have all this freedom and longevity to pursue whatever I want. And what did we pursue as a church? We pursued the things that we wanted, and we pursued largely preferences. How do we make church nicer for us and for our friends that come to our church? How do we develop things that we like? How do we tweak things in the way we want? How do we make church a place that we want to go to? And it became what we want instead of what God wants for his church. Now, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but that's largely what I saw coming out of Christendom. So we are this way when it comes to preferences leading the charge when Americans go to church. We are this way because we're just coming out of an era called Christendom where it ruled the day and we took ourselves off the hook from the Great Commission and pursued the things that we wanted. Why do preferences rule the day? Christendom and preferences rule the day because of consumerism. We live in a culture that says that our identity is wrapped up in what we consume, that our identity is wrapped up in input. It's an identity of input, right? Whether it be experiences, whether it be possessions, whether it be stuff, whatever, it's all about what can I acquire into myself, right? What vacations can I afford to take? And how many vacations can I afford to take? And how much clothes can I buy? And and how high quality of clothes can I buy? And how many square feet can I add to my house? And how many things can I put in that house? And how many cars can I get into my garage? And it's all an identity of consumerism. And our culture tells us that this is where your value is in consuming and how much you have. Let me, um, let's just do something here, all right? So I'm going to give you a phrase, and you, out loud, just say it. Fill in the blank, okay? The customer is always, yeah, you got it. Customer, right. (laughs) The customer is always right. You got that right. Okay, next one. This is a slogan, right? Have it your, from? Yeah, you got it. All right, have it your way. So you knew that, which I figured you would. 
But these two phrases come to us from our consumeristic culture, and I just want us to pause for a second and and recognize how preference-laden these statements really are. Right, the first one, the customer is always right. Well, you're the buyer, you're the consumer, so therefore your preference and everything you want is primary and the right thing, right? What you want is the right thing, and we are here as the sellers to cater to whatever you want as the buyer and whatever your preference is as the buyer because the customer is always right. It's about what you want. And then Burger King, right? Here's a meal that you can have however you want to have it because you are the customer and you are buying this meal, and therefore we want to meet all of your preferences exactly the way that you want them. All right, you're buying this garbage meal, so we want to make it as good as possible. We're going to meet your preferences, right? I can't remember the last time I went to Burger King. I think I lost a year of my life last time I went there. Anyway, that's beside the point. But, right, these phrases hint at how much preference becomes a part of our culture and how much we're fed this, that we are consumers and it's all about our preferences and what we want. Why does preference lead the day when it comes to American Christianity? Because of Christendom, because of consumerism, and mostly, I think, because of sin. Because of sin. At the core of sin is the self And sin is rooted in an elevation of self above all else. So when Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, not only were they just not doing what God told them to, So sin was an act of disobedience first. It was doing something that God forbade them from doing. But at the same time, it was also Adam and Eve trying to elevate themselves to the same status as God. Because the snake fed them the lie that if they were to eat of this fruit, their eyes would be opened, they would have the same knowledge that God had, and they could elevate themselves to the same level as God. They were not content with their incredible, amazing role as images and as gardeners of the creation, as caretakers of the creation, as missional agents of God's glory. They weren't content with that. Instead, they wanted to be God himself, and they reached out in a a usurpation, trying to elevate themselves to the same level as God. Because they wanted to elevate themselves above all else. So at the root of sin is this elevation of the self above all else. And what Peter is going to do in our scripture today is he's going to take aim at that elevation of self and at that root of sin, and he's going to take aim with the, with the weapon of suffering. All right, let's read about this. He says this. He says, so then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the weapon of suffering, all right? With the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. So he's taken aim at sin with the weapon of suffering. He's saying, how can we eradicate this? How can we overcome this sin? Well, pick up the weapon of suffering, and you can aim at that that stronghold of selfishness and that stronghold of sin. So he's talking about suffering. He's picking up this weapon of suffering, and it kind of going like, wow, wow, Peter, you really are on the suffering train there. You, You know, you talk a lot about, like, like suffering physical pain and Christ's physical pain. And like, wow, where's all this suffering coming from, right? When I read that, I'm kind of like, whoo, he's really on the suffering train. Why is he on the suffering train? Well, here we need to step into the shoes of his audience. Because Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered about the Roman Empire. Remember our word from our Christmas series, diaspora? Scattered about, diaspora. So he's writing to Christians in the diaspora who are scattered about the Roman Empire. And they're facing 
an increasing hostility from the culture, okay? So it's not like the government is giving marching orders to eradicate Christianity. They're just sort of feeling the heat. So here's how the, the NLT study Bible says it. It says, First Peter does not suggest that the Christians were being subjected to an official state-sponsored program of persecution. So that would come later. It's not like the government is saying, hey, this Christianity is a problem. We got to stamp it out. We got to eradicate it. That happens later on. When Peter is writing, Christians are just kind of starting to feel the cultural burn. Look at this. He says, most often pressures came from the general populace, sometimes aided and abetted by local officials. So they're feeling the burn from a culture that's starting to hate them and a culture that's starting to kind of attack them and take aim at them. And then when are, there are these flare-ups and these are, there's these attacks against Christians, these public officials kind of see those flare-ups and see that fire and are happy to sort of pile on and run over and feed the flames. Now I ask myself, is there a time or is there a place where we've seen this before where the government hasn't officially decided we're going to stamp out Christianity, but the culture starts to kind of put them on the outs. And when there's flare-ups, public officials are kind of happy to jump on and pile on. Is there a time, or is there a place, or is there a country where this sounds really familiar? Yes, it's us, right? This is us. I read the American church today when I read about the culture that First Peter is writing to in Rome. That's what I feel. I mean, isn't this totally the way it is right now that Christianity is being pushed to the margins of society? If you are a Christian, you have the wrong opinion. It's not like the government has said Christianity is illegal. It's not like we have to worry about the government busting down our doors and saying, this is an illegal meeting and you're all going to jail yet. (laughs) Right? We don't have to worry about that yet. But is Christianity lost its um, say and its authority and lost its clout, as it were, in culture? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a Christian, that's looked at as a bad thing in culture right now. And people will take any opportunity they can to put Christians in the crosshairs and start a fire and launch an attack. And when that happens, more people are more than happy to pile on, right? And, 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 And jump on the bandwagon in this hatred of Christianity, all right? It really feels like we're in the same shoes, so why do I say all this? I say all this because work, we, preference rules the day, unfortunately, for so many American Christians. But there's reasons for that. It's not like we just sort of decided we're going to become that way. Preference rules the day because of Christendom and an era gone by. All right. Preference rules the day because of Christendom. Preference rules the day because of sin, largely, and preference rules the day because of consumerism. I forgot my second C. <laughs> All right? It rules the day because of, because of Christendom, because of consumerism, and the most, it rules the day because of sin. So I think we all would acknowledge it, or at least I hope many of us would acknowledge this is a problem, that preference is ruling the day. So what, what needs to change? If preference rules the day, and if this is a problem, what needs to change? Peter tells us. Peter tells us what needs to change. Look at verse 2. He says, You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. It's less your own desires and more God's will. Less what you want and more what God wants. Less your own sinful, selfish will and more God's good, perfect, and holy will. And this is why I've entitled this sermon, Less Preference, More Deference. Because it's less of our preferences, and less of what we want, 
and more deference to our God's and our Father in Heaven's will. Now, if you're like me, you had to Google deference just to make sure it actually was a word. And it was, right? Because now I got this great rhyme, right? So what is, what is deference, all right? Deference is humble submission and respect. And so when we say less preference and more deference, we are saying that it's less about our preferences and less about our wish lists and less about what we want. And we're laying aside our preferences and our wish lists and our wants so that we can humbly acknowledge and submit to God's perfect will in deference to his will because he is God and we are us. That's what we mean when we say less preference and more deference. Now, this is a big ask (laughs) because it's always been about our preferences. For much of our lives, it's been about our preferences and finding a church that we like and finding a church that meets our set of preferences and our wish list. And now we're saying, wait a minute, it was never about that. It was always about deference to God's will, laying aside what we want in deference to what God wants. So that is a huge ask that that needs to change. So how are we supposed to do this huge ask? Because that's a big exchange that needs to happen, all right? I'm calling this, every week I feel like there's an exchange that needs to be made in this, in this uh, sermon series. So I, I think I'm just going to call this the great exchange. This week's great exchange is exchanging our preferences in deference for God's will. So that's a huge ask. How do we do that? How do we change Peter tells us, look at this in verse one. He says, so then since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. Christ's suffering on the cross is the fulfillment or the conclusion of the son of God laying aside his preferences in deference to his father's will. Christ's suffering on the cross is the picture or the conclusion or the fulfillment of a son who said, I'm putting aside my own preferences in deference to my dad's will. Because remember what he did in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. He spent all night pleading with his dad that there could be another way to accomplish this awesome plan that his dad came up with. He pleaded so hard with his dad that he was sweating blood. That's how much pressure he was under. And as he was in the garden pleading all night with his father, he's sweating blood. And he's saying, dad, I know this is the plan. And I know that I got to go to the cross tomorrow. But I'm just asking you as your son right now, is there some other way? Can we kind of figure out some other plan? My preference would be, Dad, that I don't have to go to that cross, that this cup would be taken from me. My preference would be, Dad, that we could figure out some other way to do this plan and accomplish your will and accomplish what you have planned out. My preference would be that we could figure out a different way. Is there another way, Dad? And he's sweating blood because he means it so passionately. And when his dad says, son, I... This is the only way. Christ says, not my will, but your will be done, Dad. When the worst torture that that day had to offer is on the line, Christ says, I'm laying aside my preferences in deference to my daddy's will. What does God want from Grace 242? I think God wants Grace 242 to be full of little Jesuses. And he wants Grace 242 to be full of little Jesuses who walk into those doors on Sunday morning and we walk in with a cross on our back. And we walk in with a cross on our back 
following in the footsteps of our Savior, Lord, and King Jesus Christ, who's walking in front of us, carrying his own cross. And we trudge behind our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, through those streets of Jerusalem, carrying our crosses, following behind our Lord and Savior, who's carrying his own cross, knowing that we are on a death march on our way to the hill of Golgotha, where we will die too. We trudge on our way to death. We follow our Savior into death to self and death to sin. Why? Why do we do that? Because we know that in following our Savior into death, on the other side of that is life eternal and life abundant and resurrection life. And we lay aside our preferences and we die to our preferences and we die to ourself in deference to what the Father wants because we recognize that our will is selfish and sinful and our will resonates with this tiny little area called me. And by setting that aside in deference to the Father's will, I am embracing a will that echoes throughout the ages. I am embracing the Father's will that is cosmic. I'm exchanging a tiny little will that says me for a cosmic will that echoes across the ages and leads to life eternal. That's why we lay aside our preferences and march behind our Savior into death to that hill, death to sin and death to self. That's what God wants for the people of Grace 242. And that's what I want to be a part of. What does God want from Grace 242? Less preference, more deference. That's what he wants.